When we were making our list of all of these projects that the UN bought carbon credits from, we, we looked up the names of the projects in a normal search engine and also on uh, environmental databases to see if they were involved in any complaints by local communities. And what we found is that at least a dozen of them were the target of, of, of mass protests in some cases that um, they had been accused of uh, displacing people, particularly in China, and of not um, adequately compensating those communities. One of them was in Brazil. It's a large hydropower dam. In order to build it, the, the company uh, blew up a holy site that um, was in, in uh, an indigenous community. Uh, there was a section of the river that the indigenous uh, community there um, considered sacred to them, and it was blown up. You wouldn't really expect um, a project that the UN says um, is helping the climate to actually be involved in deforestation and displacing uh, indigenous people and their, and their ability to worship. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Jacob Goldberg. Jacob is a reporter at The New Humanitarian, who recently did a year-long investigation with Monga Bay into the UN's claims that it is a climate-neutral organization. The result of that investigation is perhaps what the listeners of this podcast have come to expect. Not only is the United Nations not a climate-neutral organization, Jacob and his colleagues found that some of the projects they are using to offset their emissions are actually causing environmental damage to land, to ecosystems, and to indigenous peoples. Jacob joins me to explain the investigation, delving into greater details about the shocking results. We discuss the different kinds of carbon credits that are available to buy and how they are ranked, with Jacob revealing that the UN, despite this ranking system, doesn't even discriminate between available projects. This is a far-ranging conversation on this topic, given I have also investigated carbon credits in my climate corruption journalism. And through it, we discuss the systemic issues of the climate crisis, the fact that it is a symptom of a much deeper problem of extraction, corruption, exploitation, and a lack of imagination. Leaving us with the question, if such problems have infiltrated every single institution, how can we expect them to guide humanity through the crisis? I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Jacob, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Nice to be here. Thank you. And thank you for making the time so last minute as well. Just as keen to get you on to discuss this investigation. But before we go into that, um, I'm going to start with the first normal question, which is, uh, why is the world in crisis? 
This is a question <laughs> that has come up a lot since I started um, this investigation into the UN carbon credits. Now that I've had to do a lot of reading about why we're uh, living through uh, various climate crises and been asked, is there anything we can do about it? Um, is there any positive story you could, you could tell? Uh, do we need to um, always have such gloomy stories about the climate? Yeah, I've grappled with it a lot. I've not uh, come up with a positive story to tell. Um, in fact, the more I the more I read about it, I I feel like, and I'm not an expert. I'm just a journalist, so I, I do this research just while reporting for stories. But if I could um, narrow down the cause of why the world is the way it is, I would say it's because governments are subsidizing fossil fuels um they're, that they're false that they're subsidizing them at all and especially um especially uh at the expense of renewable energy and you, you know the climate crisis is the result of greenhouse gas emissions uh that are the result of burning fossil fuels there are uh there are decent proposals for how uh renewable energy could be adopted uh at a greater scale with government support that's just not happening now and so we have this uh constant uh outflow of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that's making the world warmer that's causing disasters and there are yeah that's the result of government decisions and obviously there's there's a ideology and interests that underlie those decisions um i would Speaking personally, I would say capitalism is definitely one of them. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think if I had to narrow it down, that's what I'd say. Could you expand quickly on government subsidies of fossil fuels at the expense of renewable energy? Mm, yeah, I wish I could. Uh, it's It's not the subject of my investigation, but... I what well, we I think if you if you look at experts' recommendations for what needs to happen immediately uh, in order to prevent us for uh, prevent the atmosphere from warming um, 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels, is that uh, fossil fuel consumption needs to end immediately. But if fossil fuel consumption ended immediately, we would um, we would lose the the comforts and luxuries and technologies that we've all become accustomed to. Our our civilization would collapse. What could sustain our um, our way of living if we were to give up fossil fuels? It's other sources of energy, but those are not there. So when I say that governments are subsidizing fossil fuels at the expense of renewable energies, it's because they have this this money to invest in sources of energy they are not putting it toward what would uh, what would slow the, pa the pace of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's lots of different theories as to why, but the geopolitical tensions between sort of the biggest renewable energy producer in the world and the biggest fossil fuel run um, superpower in the world is no doubt at play here at the expense of, of life on Earth currently. <laughs> yeah, you're but right. This, <laughs> but this isn't an episode about superpowers. It's about the uh, NGOs that support them. 
So how is it that you came into uh, investigating uh, the carbon credits of the UN or the UN's claim, sorry, that it's carbon neutral? Right. Yeah. So we started, I started with, um, well, let me just say to, to start off, um, I work at the New Humanitarian, uh, which is an outlet that covers humanitarian crises and the humanitarian aid sector. We very frequently report uh, on the UN um, and its involvement in humanitarian aid, uh, but we also report on climate and climate change because it's one of the biggest factors in why humanitarian crises happen. Uh, in 2021, my colleagues investigated the aid sector's um, carbon footprint, trying to calculate their uh, annual emissions. And one thing that my colleagues came across was a claim by the UN to be almost completely climate neutral. And what does it mean? Carbon to be neutral. Uh, they use the term or climate cl neutral. They climate think, neutral. Climate neutral. Correct. Yeah. What does that uh, mean? <laughs> it's it's used almost interchangeably. I think that there was just these these terms um they they're well let me i'll, I'll get ahead of myself and say these are greenwashing these are greenwashing terms and yeah. i think they they change every once in a while to suit um to suit whatever uh public messaging need um is required um people still say carbon neutral people started saying climate neutral more recently i guess that's that might be because carbon is not the only greenhouse gas when they right. say climate neutral, including including the UN, what they mean is they don't have any uh, impact on climate change. They're saying that despite all the fossil fuels they burn, which they obviously do, that's not raising the absolute uh, amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. Somehow they're able to burn millions of tons uh, or they're able to emit uh, millions of metric tons of um, greenhouse gases. But those don't go on. Those are not uh, those are stricken from the record. Why? Because they buy uh, they buy carbon credits, which theoretically offset their emissions. So that's that's where the question came from. They're climate neutral. They say the UN claims not or implicitly claims not to have any contribution to climate change, and that's because of carbon credits. So we decided to investigate that claim. If they if they claim to be climate neutral, which is a very bold claim. And they use carbon credits. Uh, we wanted to figure out how exactly that works, and yeah, we we did we did come pretty close to figuring it out. I would say we did. <laughs> I would say you did too from your results. Yeah. Um, so the investigation took around a year, from what I understand. That's right. And what exactly what exactly were you investigating? Were you investigating the validity of these carbon credits, investigating how they are used, whether or not they exist, the organizations they're linked to? What was the systemic overview of things that you were looking at? It, it was all of the above. I think what we needed to do from the beginning was to collect a list of offsetting projects that produced the UN's carbon credits. And I can, let me explain a little bit um, carbon credits, when you say, uh, you, you mentioned how carbon credits are used. They're not really used because they're not, they're not physical things. They're, they're just an idea. And it's an idea that, uh, if that, um, it's an idea that says somewhere in the world, a metric, one metric ton of uh, greenhouse gas, specifically carbon dioxide was prevented from being emitted because that was prevented from being emitted, I can now emit one metric ton of greenhouse gas. 
and I am not contributing to climate change. That's so nice. how so how do uh, how can you how can that one metric ton be prevented from being emitted? It's because there are these um, programs; these they call them projects all over the world that uh, calculate that do various things. They can produce renewable energy through hydropower um, or wind. They can make factories more efficient. They can capture and destroy potent greenhouse gases. Um, they can capture methane from coal mines and prevent it from going into the atmosphere. So they calculate how much, uh, those projects calculate how much greenhouse gas they're preventing from entering the atmosphere. And then they, uh, and then they, through that, using that calculation, they sell a certain number of credits, and and the UN has bought millions of those credits. And those those credits vary in quality according to experts. We didn't um, do any of our own scientific assessments of the projects that the UN bought credits from. We relied on existing expertise, and it's a it's a it's a vast body of research. But what we found was pretty much that the UN bought millions of credits from the types of projects that are that experts consider to be of the lowest quality, the least likely to have actually reduced uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that was one that was one important finding. And like you said, we, we also uh, wanted to see if there were any connections between the projects that uh, produced the UN's carbon credits and human rights abuses or uh, any other environmental environmental damage. And yes, uh, we, I didn't expect Personally, I didn't expect to find that, but but uh, we did find that in at least uh, at least a dozen cases. All right, okay, let's um, go through this and break it down. Then um, number one, the UN buying sort of low grade carbon credits. How is that? Because carbon is a gas, <laughs> so sure it doesn't have a a quality metric. So how is it that there can be credits that are um, higher quality and lower quality? Yeah, exactly. You're right. Um, it's not about the quality of, of any any type of gas. It's about the likelihood of the project to actually reduce greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. And the way that experts determine whether a project is, is likely or unlikely to actually achieve that reduction that it claims to is it's a concept called additionality. And um, we agonized over whether to explain this concept in our piece because there's not many um, contexts in which you have to use or understand it except in the conversation we're having right now. <laughs> um, but I'm glad we're having it. Um, so additionality additionality is a requirement for an offsetting project to be able to, to produce credits. And it means that the reductions in greenhouse gases that that project achieves. So let me give an example. Um, Let's say we're talking about a hydropower dam. It claims it's reduced uh, greenhouse gas in the atmosphere because it's produced energy that would have otherwise come from fossil fuels. So because it because it uh, created, let's say, uh, a million metric tons, or let's say it produced enough energy to prevent a million metric tons of uh, greenhouse gases from going in the atmosphere because that energy would have otherwise come from fossil fuels, it can then sell a million carbon credits. What additionality uh, requires of that project is for it to prove that those reductions would not have happened anyway. It has to prove that that energy, mm. that that renewable energy, would not have been produced anyway. 
And what's what's the biggest factor determining whether uh, a hydropower dam gets built, whether a hydropower dam can produce renewable energy? The biggest factor is not whether it can sell carbon credits. The biggest factor is whether it has support from the local government and whether it's profitable. And in most cases, these uh, these dams are profitable or at least economically viable because they sell energy. If it doesn't require revenue from the sale of carbon credits to come into existence in the first place, then its reductions would have happened anyway. And it should not be allowed to sell carbon credits based on those alleged reductions. That's what the experts say. That's what the project's own uh, principles say. But the carbon credit market is contaminated with thousands of projects um, that that would have been built regardless of their ability to sell carbon credits. And therefore, according to experts, they shouldn't be allowed to sell carbon credits. Oh, it's so fascinating. It's amazing how like economic think speak double nonsense has like genuinely managed to convince even government officials that the world can be organized according to how you think it is. Like, <laughs> like this whole concept of, I mean, we'll keep going to the details, but this whole concept of like, I'm going to emit into the atmosphere, but it's actually not going to go into the atmosphere because there's trees over there. No, 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 no. Yeah. At what point did physics like, and it, <laughs> at what point did physics go? Oh yeah, we're just like accounting. You can just balance our books. No problem. Like it is absolute madness and anybody that thinks about it for more than half a second kind of comes to that conclusion but it's really managed to convince a lot of experts well not carbon credit experts and not scientists but a lot of government officials that this is the way forward because it is the way forward that promises business as usual exactly i mean that's uh, that was the entire reason why carbon credits were devised in the first place um or at least the ones that the UN buys, they come from this UN-run uh, program called the Clean Development Mechanism. And it was devised during the Kyoto Protocol negotiations in the 90s as a way to allow uh, rich countries to say that they're contributing to fighting climate change, but without actually uh, divesting from fossil fuels, which would be very costly and harmful to their economies. Instead, they could reduce, they could theoretically reduce emissions abroad uh, and by supporting offsetting projects abroad. Um, but yeah, like the experts say, those are not all of equal quality. And, and then and another critique that is, that is often, um, that carbon credits uh, often receive is that they, they serve as permission for, uh, for companies and for wealthy countries to actually emit more. So let's say, let's say I, let's say I bought uh, one carbon credit and then I feel like I can emit one ton of carbon dioxide, but then I find out that that carbon credit was low quality. So then not only am I not, not only am I not uh, climate neutral, I've actually increased the yeah. amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. So yeah. they, these can be very harmful. Yeah, let's talk about that harm as well. You said that there was a second class of these um, carbon credits that the UN was buying that are actually causing environmental damage or harm to local and indigenous peoples. Yes. So we had to, we, when we were making our list of all of these projects that, um, that the UN bought carbon credits from, we, we looked up the names of the projects in a normal uh, search engine and also on uh, environmental databases to see if they were involved in any complaints by local communities. And what we found is that at least a dozen of them 
uh, were were the target of, of of mass protests in some cases that um, they had been accused of uh, displacing people, particularly in China, of and of not um, adequately compensating those communities. Um, there's one, the one that we've, there's a couple that we focused on. One of them was in Brazil. It's a very, it's a large hydropower dam. And uh, Mangabe, our partners in reporting this investigation, they had previously reported that this dam, the Telus Pires dam, uh, that's uh, in the Amazon. Um, in order to build it, the the company uh, blew up a holy site that um, was in, in uh, an indigenous community. Uh, there was a section of the river that the indigenous uh, community there um, considered sacred to them, and it was blown up, um, and parts of the for parts of the forest were destroyed. So you wouldn't really expect um, a project that that the that the UN says um, is helping the climate to actually be involved in deforestation and. Um, and, and displacing uh, indigenous people and their and their ability to worship. That's awful. Imagine, um, <laughs> like, imagine telling uh, the French, um, "Yeah, we're going to dam up the Seine and build a hydropower dam, and we're going to blow up Notre Dame uh, in order to get it done." You know, like it's just it's it's unthinkable. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be if if it wasn't so common, I guess. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very well said. There is, um, I think it really betrays the sort of still colonial hierarchical mindset, which, you know, along the spectrum becomes white supremacism, where other cultures, other ways of life, other beings are just not at all respected. And, you know, anything that stands in the way of the system that needs to continuously expand is up for destruction. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I agree. So you found out that, um, do you have a percentage, like how many of the projects were bad? <laughs> yeah, so they can be, um, they can be bad in different ways. And we, so like I said, we didn't uh, scientifically evaluate um, all of the projects to find out their quality that only experts can do that. And there's uh, professional ratings agencies that do that and give them and give them ratings. So we cross-referenced, um, some of the projects in in our database with some that uh, a professional ratings agency called B0 that are based in London had already rated. There weren't that many. There was a couple dozen, I think, but most of them had low ratings. So that I, that's I'm not saying that's um, statistically significant, but it showed us that if you take a random sample of what we found and run it and, and give it a rating, you're not finding you're not finding high quality projects. We also uh, compared our findings to something called the Carbon Offset Guide, which is um, a manual published by the Stockholm Environment Institute and the Greenhouse Gas Management Institute that gives, um, yeah, I think it's a great resource for understanding how carbon credits work, but it also groups uh, different types of projects uh, into low, medium, or high risk. So by types of projects, I mean how does it uh, how does it achieve emissions or claim to achieve emissions? And those are the various types that I outlined before. Does it capture and destroy greenhouse gases? Does it replace fossil fuels with renewable energy? Um, the what we found is that more than forty percent, uh, or more, no, more than fifty percent of the projects 
in our database that we found that the UN had bought credits from came from project types that were high risk, meaning they are likely to be the, the lowest quality, more than half. Um, and then, and then within that, uh, about 40% came from uh, wind and hydropower projects. And these are the two types of projects that experts um, can, can criticize most easily and, and I think do most often because these are the ones that are most likely to be profitable without the sale of carbon credits and therefore should not be allowed to sell carbon credits. So 40% of what the UN bought came from these project types that are considered low quality. Good God. I suppose that leads us on to um, who at the UN is buying these? Like, do we know what their framework is for choosing these projects? Um, because it's either desperate incompetence or desperate incompetence. I can't really think of what another <laughs> option would be. <laughs> that is a very good question. I actually want to give credit to the UNFCCC, which is the UN's uh, entity that focuses on, on climate change. I wouldn't have been able to put together a database of the UN's carbon credits if they hadn't supplied it to me. It did take months. Um, I did have to ask repeatedly for for this data, for records of what credits they bought and what, what projects they came from. But ultimately, they did supply it. Um, and that allowed us to to, to analyze the, the patterns and come, come to these conclusions that the UN had not bought very high-quality carbon credits. But um, to answer your question, the UNFCCC, they're the entity that buys carbon credits on behalf of most other UN entities. Um, and when we put our findings to them, uh, they did not answer any questions about any specific projects or project types. They said that they rely on the standards of the clean development mechanism, which, like I said earlier, was the UN-run um, program um, that came from the Kyoto Protocol negotiations that that issues these credits in the first place. It has its own standards. They say that they say that these projects are vetted, and they UNFCCC relies on those standards in the belief that each credit is of equal quality and uh, and and successfully reduces uh, one metric ton of uh, greenhouse gas from the atmosphere. Um, they also said. And and that's I, and yeah, my comment, my response to that is that that's 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 a very outdated position to take. Uh, the clean development mechanism has been uh, has been cri criticized for the same reasons I've been talking about for more than a decade. I, I think if you ask any carbon credit expert, they will tell you that there are there are lots of low quality uh, credits uh, available there, and I and and the most. The experts who are most generous toward the concept of carbon credits would say, if you're going to buy from the clean development mechanism, you have to make sure you're buying the highest quality. Um, the UN does not do that. They treat them all as equal. And they even told me that they assign, they, they are not chosen at all. They are assigned randomly and indiscriminately. So they come in bulk and there, there is no thought to how, um, how these um, carbon credits and in, end up in the UN's portfolio. God, what a way to get yourself off the hook. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hang on. Hold up. With these... Hmm. So I assume a lot of these projects were voluntary projects as well. Well, what do you mean by that? Because there's, the, there's a voluntary carbon credit market and then there's the... 
like right. governmental ones. Right, right. So I, I think, yeah, government, the clean development mechanism was created for governments to offset their emissions, but an individual or an organization can voluntarily buy credits from it. So I think all of its credits are available to, to either an individual, an organization, or a country. But most, most countries, um, I think most countries stopped buying from the clean development mechanism um, in 2012 or 2013 because of quality concerns. God, 10 years ago. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, there's a lot, there's a lot um, that I ended up reporting in this story that could have been reported 10 years ago. I, it would have been, yeah, it, it would have been more timely then, but yeah. um, I guess, th yeah, this specific question hadn't arisen by then. True. But I think also to be, to be fair to our, you know, kin, our journalistic kin, it, apparently it doesn't seem to matter how much you report on a thing. Like things just very rarely change. It takes one hell of an investigation and typically an investigation that feels quite like salacious and exciting to sort of like grab public interest at least. You know, carbon credits, like Mon Monga Bay broke that first story in late 2021 around the 80 billion um, deal in Sabah, Malaysia in which like all of the forests have been handed over to this company that had just been created like overnight that um with people that had no uh, backing in carbon credits that were linked to the kingmaker of the state and the indigenous people hadn't given their free prior informed consent it was a hundred year deal that had a, a clause in the contract that said any future governments that cancel this will have to pay a loss of profits to to this company and it's like it's mm. so obviously a scam <laughs> it's so obviously a scam Mongabay reported on it Sarawak report reported on it um I tried to help out as well and the Mongabay have kept doing it I've kept doing it like just article after article after article Ketan Joshi on uh Twitter and Blue Sky and as a climate comms expert like we're all constantly sounding the alarm mm-hmm and it just doesn't change anything. I mean, look at that Guardian um, investigation that came out in January around Vera. Like 90% of credits sold on the voluntary market are fake. They don't mm -hmm. exist. And the UN's like, oh, yeah, I guess we'll just, you know, tweak Vera a little bit. But it's still the backbone of all major policies. Sorry, I know it's your interview, but now I'm ranting. Go and on. then what we see... <laughs> You know, that happens in January. And then this summer, we see that an Emirati company is buying up 10% of the landmass in Liberia to mm -hmm. offset the emissions of the fossil fuel state, essentially. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it feels like it doesn't matter how much you scream from the rooftops around the, about this thing. Because as long as, like, I don't know, essentially, incompetent visionless people who apparently are in positions of powers are not interested in attacking the systemic um drivers underpinning all of this nothing's going to change well i have my own answer to this but why why do you think that is why do i think that is evidence <laughs> i'm i just I, I why do i think what bit of it why do i think they're visionless why do i think they're no, systemic no, no. drivers why do you think that oh. nothing nothing changes, uh, especially regarding carbon credits? They've been debunked. Um, they've been. They've been uh, it, yeah. I mean, lo lots of them have been very thoroughly debunked. Why? Why do yeah. we still use them? I think there's layers to it. So I think that there is sort of like nefarious interest um, in propping up a solution that allows us to continue 
the system as it is um all in the guise of greenwashing of, of essentially saying that we're doing something which is what the public needs to see right now um i think that there is a deep fear about transitioning away from fossil fuels i believe that um politicians they don't have a plan um and they sort of like maybe vaguely understand that it does end this current world order like you can kiss goodbye to empire um when we we turn away from fossil fuels because it is the lifeblood of empire yeah. um and i think beyond that i don't like to think that people are evil because i think again that sort of like it's too easy right it's just too easy making a them and us and saying that people are evil the reason that i say that these people are sort of visionless is that there are these like growth drivers built into our economic system i don't know very much about it but this relationship between like debt and credit and economic growth um meaning that we constantly have to expand the economy have to um in order to avoid recession uh in order to avoid things collapsing civilization collapsing and all this kind of stuff and there just seems to be an inherent lack of understanding that those kinds of things are going to happen anyway because you're going to continue burning fossil fuels and there's going to continue being warming mm -hmm. so you might as well manage the descent like hold on to the planes you know um i don't know a wheel what does a plane have <laughs> hold on to the planes thing while it's crashing to try and minimize whatever damage or mitigate whatever damage we can because it's going to crash either way mm -hmm. um so yeah, I think a mix of like system dynamics, lack of uh, ignorance, um, and then only at the 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 very top, you know, actual sort of nefarious corruption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I I agree. I mean, mm. uh, I, I I was thinking about it a bit more narrowly than than how it um, than how it's in, uh, entangled with empire, but I would say that. Carbon credits are the one thing that can give uh, an individual who cares about climate change the comfort that they're doing something. And if you take it away, then they will have absolutely nothing. I think that that might be a good thing because, because as I said earlier, I I think the question of um how, uh, of uh, how to stop climate crises um, is one that governments need to solve, and they're not going to. Which means that uh, dis future disasters are inevitable, but being able to to click a button and buy offset your emissions and say that you did not contribute to the problem, maybe that uh, desensitizes you to to the fact that disaster is coming. Oh, interesting! I'd never thought about it from that end. Um, I don't know how many people are think about or use carbon credits or click that button to offset their emissions. It's very hard to know when you you must feel this way too, when you're like deep in the thing. It's very hard to know what public consensus is on That's on true, I don't, I don't know. But <laughs> uh, but I do, I'd find the idea of, of them appealing. I just happen to have read a lot about them and know that they're not the solution. Yeah. I think it's a good moment to throw in here as well that despite, you know, carbon credits being debunked 10 years ago and continuously for the past 10 years and those kinds of investigations becoming like globally public um in the past few years um the united nations and the european parliament are currently in the process of creating their own framework for biodiversity credits and biodiversity markets mm. and methane credits i found out this morning 
and mm. water pollution credits, uh, air pollution credits, the financialization of the damage we are doing, maybe the financialization of externalization um, is not slowing down in face of scientific evidence and in face of warning um, from scientists and journalists alike. It is getting worse. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You're right. Yeah. Sorry, I keep sort of taking us off on like little angry tangents. <laughs> I don't mind it. I think it's good to hear. Yeah. It's your show. <laughs> the show. Yeah. The world is ending. No, I'm kidding, everyone. Everything's fine. You asked earlier who's responsible. And I mentioned the UN and I mentioned the UNFCCC and how they didn't respond to any questions about any specific projects um, or about, or yeah, or, or, and they didn't respond to whether they would revive, they would investigate any of the low quality projects and project types we brought to them or revise their, um, their claim of being climate neutral. They didn't, they didn't get back to us on that. They only told us that they rely on the standards of the clean development mechanism, which are, which have, yeah, pretty much been debunked. Um, but now that, now that I've mentioned the UNFCCC, I think it, that brings us back to why we, I, why we at the New Humanitarian in Mongabay investigated this question in the first place, because the UNFCCC is the, is the entity that buys carbon credits on behalf of most other UN entities, um, and then allows them through those purchases to claim to be climate neutral. It's also the UN entity that is most involved in, uh, that was most involved in the Kyoto Protocol and negotiations, that is most involved in the Paris Agreement that puts on the annual uh, COP meetings. It's the most relevant UN entity to the global effort to do something about uh, climate change. And it's also the one that is operating on very outdated information uh, about carbon credits and how and whether it's even possible to achieve climate neutrality it might it might also be um some of our uh, so some of the sources we interviewed some experts said they're greenwashing they're misleading the public by saying they're climate neutral i don't think you want um an organization that is misleading the public about its uh, achievements uh, at addressing the climate crisis to to necessarily be the one leading the global effort to to do something about the climate crisis. I, there's a, there's a disconnect there, and we wanted them to address that. Uh, they didn't, but I think that if there's one point that I I hope readers will take from this, it, it would be that um, yeah that tension. Very. Well put. I think this is kind of what the public, especially the public that's sort of like plugged into the, all of the different problems that we're sort of facing, these like social justice problems, essentially. Uh, environment is, is one of them. What are we going to do given the organizations in charge are sort of seemingly incapable of responding? Um, how many years are going to go by whilst we still believe uh, what is now obvious sort of um, deception, whether it's deliberate or not. 
Um, and when are these organizations going to come out and say that they don't actually have the solutions in order to better collaborate with one another to figure out what to do? Because, I mean, I was at a thing recently and there was a really lovely woman from the UN and she's working uh, on the biodiversity market. I think she's at the UNFCCC. And, you know, this poor woman, I hammered her. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but why? What? How? The research, you know, um, we've already seen that biodiversity market uh, testing in Australia has been harmful to local environment and indigenous people. We've already, like, look at the history of carbon credits. Like, this is a mechanism that just doesn't work. And, and I said, you know, it, it doesn't work and it is going to cause or at least be partly responsible for us not mitigating in time and seeing huge destruction all around the world. And she gets it. You know, she was, she really is doing her best. She's deeply passionate about the climate crisis. She's deeply passionate about social justice issues. She's deeply passionate about trying to find a solution. And essentially like the Overton window of possibility that has been given to her within this organization is, you know, upsetting. Run with mm. it, go, do. Um, and when you have people with good intentions like that working on developing the thing, and then you've got, you know, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, screaming his head off at world leaders that they are essentially committing mass murder. I mean, that is now what he is saying, like, you are not doing enough. We are all going to die. You just got to wonder what is happening in all of those chains of commands. If like the top, <laughs> the top boss gets it <laughs> and uh, the workers in the offices get it. Mm -hmm. What is happening that still these bad decisions are being made? How effective can these organizations be? How effective can these good intentions truly be? There's obviously some structural problem. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's something that I'm also desperate to understand, considering that the UNFCCC was um, was generous to me in supplying the data. But when they, when I asked them, or when I pointed out to them that it undermined their their advertising, they kind of they went silent for a long time and then got back to us with a very very brief answer that didn't answer most of our questions. Yeah, I I would I don't doubt that they they know what I'm getting at, um, but. Something prevented them from answering my questions. Some some force that I don't understand yet. Mm. I'd love to see your list of questions. Okay, <laughs> you can see them. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like, yeah, and their answer in in full. In fact, could you send me that? Because I'd quite like to publish it along with the episode info, if that's all right. That's. Uh, I think that's. Um, an interesting request. Let me just, let me talk to my, sure. uh, my superiors. I don't have a problem with it. Great. Great. That would be, it yeah. would just be great to see. I think so often in like journalistic investigations, this is the kind of info that the public don't, don't get to see. They don't get to see how it happens. That's very interesting. I, I would be, I think I'm into it. Let me, let me yeah. get permission though. Oh, wicked. Cool. I the first time I've asked it. It was a very spontaneous request, but yeah, that mm. whole like so-and-so did not respond uh, to request for comment or so-and-so said X. It's like, you don't, like, do people understand how much they're refusing to answer mm -hmm. in that, by giving that sentence or by not replying to that email? Um, yeah, great. Oh, great. That'd be fun. I hope your superiors uh, say yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, me too. 
All right, Jacob. I mean, I think that um, unless you just want to keep banging on together about how um, institutions are broken, we've probably we've probably got it all. I suppose there is one thing. I thought about this before jumping on with you, actually. Given the UNFC, C did not respond to those emails and given the history of reporting on carbon credits, what do you hope your investigation will achieve? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, one thing that makes it hard to answer is that I feel like um, someone should have asked uh, the, the question that prompted our investigation 10 years ago. And I think then there was more appetite for someone to do something about uh, faulty, low-quality carbon credits. Now, yeah, as you said, nothing really happens every time they're criticized. But I'm hoping that the UN will ultimately be responsive. I'm hoping that the UN, especially the UNFCCC, which is the most responsible for um, leading uh, leading the effort to um, address climate change on a global stage, that they'll be responsive to science and that they will somehow address the concerns, that, uh, address the questions we originally brought to them. So they could do that in a few ways. They could investigate um, the, pro the offsetting projects that were linked to environmental damage or um, human rights abuses or displacement, uh, and they could publish their findings. They could investigate the quality of the carbon credits they bought um, using more up-to-date standards, not just the ones from the clean development mechanism. Um, they could revise their claim of being climate neutral because that claim implies that they don't contribute to climate change. And that is a very bold claim. And when you make it based on low quality carbon credits, uh, like many of the experts told us, you are misleading the public. You are promoting a solution to uh, the climate crisis that does not work. So I would like to see them revise their climate neutrality claim. And we'll find out uh, at the end of November when they release their next Greening the Blue report, which is uh, an annual report where they say how much uh, greenhouse gas they've emit emitted over the previous year and how many carbon credits they bought and whether they're usually, whether they're climate neutral. Um, let's see if that changes. Excellent. Thank you for that. And on a perhaps more general level, do you ever think about or have any ideas about maybe how journalism needs to reform itself? Because, I mean, the amount of us doing really hard work, <laughs> um, producing these investigations, doing these investigations on really pertinent topics that then just got, get lost to the wind. What can we do about that? Mm, that is a question that... Um... Yeah, that tortures me in a few ways. Like, on the one hand, I don't think I'm very important. I I come at it, um, for better or for worse, with uh, with humility. Like, I don't think I'm the best journalist in the world. I don't think my reporting is going to change the world. Um, I'm. I think I. I mean, I approach the job and perhaps come come up in the in the industry at a time when. I, more people think think this way that um i think it's uh it's an amazing uh profession but the chances of having the type of impact that will avert climate disaster are very very low um 
I think it's just the best I can do. That, that's it. It, it's the best anyone can do. Um, the, the skill set I bring to, um, issues of, uh, of, of global concern is journalism. That's all I have. Um, I hope it works. I hope it does something good, but if it doesn't, I won't be surprised, unfortunately. Yeah, understood. All right, Jacob, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fascinating. Um, always keen to get these like particular stories around um, the full solutions being peddled around today. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? I would like to platform um, a couple of reporters who I don't know. Um, their names are Sue Branford and Mauricio Torres. They published um, they published an article in Manga Bay, who was my reporting partner in my investigation, um, called Is Brazil Greenwashing Hydropower? The Case of the Telus Pires Dam. So my... Uh, the investigation that I worked on talked about, um, touched on some of the harmful impacts of the Telus Pires Dam, that hydropower dam in the Amazon. Um, this, their article goes deeper into the the harm it's been accused of, the indigenous communities that have been affected, um, and comes at it from a different perspective, not looking at the quality necessarily of their carbon credits, but the fact that there is a dark side to hydropower. That's not a new idea, but I think it is... Um, it was helpful for me to know the details and uh, I think your your listeners could benefit from it too and also uh, see, go go more deeply into one aspect of, of my investigation that I, I think is um, very useful. Excellent, thank you. Jacob, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you too. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.